This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. You're listening to What's Politics, where we delve into political concepts, ideas and questions and explore how they impact all of us. Race is a concept that has shaped how a large majority of people in many parts of the world see themselves and each other. However, as we learn more about this concept, it becomes evident that race is a man-made idea, but with very real, pervasive and devastating impacts towards communities. This is what I'm going to be exploring on today's show with Peter Beattie, political economist and a political psychologist at Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Peter. How are you? Thank you, Dashran. I'm doing well. How do you understand the concept of race? I define the concept of race as a pseudoscientific category. Uh, it's it's closely related to the concept of species, and that's basically where it, it kind of emerges from the idea that oh, different human groups are just like different species of of animal. Now, the, the definition in biology of a species is a, a group of of organisms that occupy a, a distinct ecolog- ecological niche. So like where they live, what they eat, how they, they you know, go about their lives. And they don't interbreed with, with other groups of animals. So that's the, the, the real uh, uh, scientific thing that exists. Species exist, but race itself is a pseudoscientific uh, uh, abuse of the the concept of species that was invented pretty clearly to justify the slave trade. It was kind of a, a way to make people feel better that they were torturing other humans. And the way that they were made to feel better was the pseudo pseudoscientific belief that there are races, first of all, uh, within humanity, and that these races are fundamentally different. So the, 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 the concept of race is pseudoscientific bunk, but once you have an idea in millions of people's of heads, then it becomes a social reality, even if it doesn't have any like real physical scientific reality. And you can imagine we, we did this cont- entirely differently as a, as a species for 500 years. You can imagine that uh, instead of uh, uh, melanation, levels of melanation in skin being the, the dividing line between these quote unquote races, you can imagine, you know, like eye color being the dividing line and, and the beliefs uh, connected to that pseudoscientific bunk would be that, you know, people with color A eyes are more intelligent, harder working, blah, blah, blah. And people with color B eyes are lazy and uh, stupid and people with color C eyes are in between. That's obviously pseudoscientific hogwash. But if that idea, that conception of eye color races had spread around the world and people actually believed it for a long time, including up to today, then that would be a a social construct with very real impacts. It's very much part of social reality, but at its core, it's just pseudoscientific nonsense. Let's expand on that a little bit. It is biology that that my face looks this way, that I'm of this skin color, um, that I am of a certain height, and there are other people um, like me, for example, I'm an ethnic Indian. Most ethnic mm-hmm. Indians have my kind of skin color. Perhaps they are, uh, you know, they can grow beards compared to many ethnic Chinese people who can't grow beards and things like that. 
Isn't this all rooted in in biology? Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great point. Like the 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 pseudoscientific concept of race is rooted in a very superficial aspect of biology in exactly the same way as my uh, example of uh, eye color based races <laughs> is pseudoscientific bunk, but it's also has a basis in biology. You know, we have genes that that code for different eye colors, right? So that you can trace down a, a biological basis, but you've got to return to the, the, uh, the origin of the concept of race to really understand what it was, what it was, uh, what it was, what it is and what it was trying to do. So at the very origins, the, uh, the concept of race was tying uh, superficial phenotypic characteristics. Phenotypic is just the, the kind of outward expression of genes. In this case, melanin levels and, and other like superficial, like uh, facial features, et cetera. And tying those superficial characteristics to much deeper, more important characteristics like mental capacity, character, uh, uh, ability to lead, ability to innovate, all of these sorts of things that are, you know, modern science would just laugh at. Um, it, it's absurd just for so many reasons. I, I guess I would just uh, pick the, the, the reason from evolutionary theory. It makes no sense to believe that in one part of the world, selection pressures favored intelligence, uh, leadership, ability to innovate, these sorts of things, and then in other parts of the world, there weren't selection pressures for this. That's just laughable on its face. The other aspect, just from evolutionary theory, that make that that demonstrates why uh, race is is just a pseudoscientific uh, nonsense category, uh, is that we as a species, like when we were uh, diverging, when we were moving out of Africa, some hundred thousand years ago, roughly speaking. Uh, actually, it's probably more like 50, 60,000 when you had the, the real successful uh, emigration out of Africa. We can trace back uh, differences in skin color. The last genetic research I, I read on this uh, traces it back to just 10,000 years ago. You know, 10,000 years is a, is a blink of an eye in evolutionary time. So to think that, first of all, there would be these, <laughs> these vastly different selection pro uh, pressures operating in different climactic regions of the world and that they could affect these incredible changes over such a short period of time so as to produce different quote-unquote races that have vastly different intellectual capacities and, and different kinds of, of social intelligence. I mean, it, it beggars belief. So, Peter, if race um, is, as you put it, a, an, an invention, a social construct that became a social reality, how and why did the concept of race as we understand it today come to be? you always had groups of humans who would distinguish themselves from other groups and look down on other groups while thinking that their own group was the best. What's fundamentally different about the concept of, of race and then racism coming from it is that it's an extremely strong form of this basic kind of prejudice or xenophobia. And it emerges historically around the same time as uh, the slave trade really uh, takes picks up. Uh, European slave trade, kidnapping people from uh, Africa and then bringing them to the Americas largely. And there you can see you know, the, the, the psychological motivations very clearly. You've got people that are, are raised 
in the uh, the Catholic religion, they're they're taught that all humans have souls, that uh, God created everyone. But then at the same time, you see this massively profitable opportunity to kidnap people and enslave them and force them to work for you. So how do you square this circle? It seems like this is this is going to produce a lot of cognitive dissonance, this strong discomfort at seeing a contradiction between how you're behaving and what you purportedly believe. So racism comes in as this brilliant way of explaining this all away that, well, these aren't really fully humans. Like they're a different race of humans and races are so incredibly different. Like uh, uh, from a, from a, a, a dog to a, uh, a dolphin, for instance, like they're, they're vastly different. And so race, the concept, the pseudoscientific concept of race basically comes in to make people feel better about carrying on the slave trade and uh, enslaving humans uh, to work for your profit. And then this pseudoscience comes in to, to make people feel better about it. The, the fact that uh, the pseudoscience of race is so beneficial to supporting the system of slavery it's a, a telltale sign of why this this way of, of looking at other humans uh, spread so widely in Europe uh, over the past you know half millennium or so. Uh, it's just it's obvious you know what what purpose it was serving because it is exactly the same as me positing that people with green eyes are the superior master race. And people with blue eyes are inferior uh, Ubermenschen, uh, 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 slave race. It's People would laugh at that because they'd say, well, it's just eye color. Who cares? But that's precisely why our current concept of race is pseudoscientific hogwash, because it's arbitrary. It's choosing a one of many possible phenotypic characteristics, skin color, and then attaching this massive... Uh, unwarranted baggage, like, oh, uh, attached to this skin color is uh, a certain level of intellectual capacity. That is just, it's its nonsense. The, the fundamental reason why race is such pseudoscientific, is such pseudoscience, is its arbitrariness. It, it arbitrarily picks a external characteristic, a phenotypic characteristic of a group of people, and then uh, weaves this fantastical story about who that, that, that people are, what their capacities are, uh, on no basis whatsoever. On the show with me today is Peter Beattie, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, we discuss systemic racism. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box and you're listening to What's Politics. I'm Darshan Johan and with me is Peter Beattie, political economist and political psychologist at Chinese University of Hong Kong. And today's episode, we are unpacking the concept of race. So, Peter, how does the notion of race as a social construct intersect with your understanding of systemic racism as we discuss it in, in contemporary politics? Well, it intersects in, in the way that race is a social construct and it's a social reality, even though it's based on pseudoscientific hogwash. And the way that it, it 
has social reality is because so many people have been taught to believe that race is a real thing. That if you see the, the, the superficial characteristic of another person and you connect that to their quote unquote racial category, you all of a sudden know a lot about that person. So if you have a lot of people who actually believe this, then you can have all sorts of effects, including structural racism. So you can have the, the example of structural racism in the, in the U.S. Is, is many, but you know, just go back to the, the end of the Civil War. Uh, you had the uh, failed reconstruction effort in the in the southern states trying to uh, completely change the political economy there away from a slaveocracy toward a, a, a modern capitalist uh, economy. And you had all sorts of, of uh, resistance from the former ruling class to prevent that from happening. And it took so many different forms. I guess you could start with you know, the, uh, the freed slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule if they helped the war effort to overthrow the slaveocracy. They weren't given that. So they, they leave slavery with zero in capital, in, in command over economic resources. And so they start off as, you know, ostensibly free people with zero capital, whereas the rest of, of society has some degree of capital. I mean, if we're talking about small peasant farmers, independent farmers, you're not talking about real money. It's, it's not much of a step up, but you're certainly lacking the, the, the capitalist class, that group of people within your uh, ethnic group, which is like the, the real world way of describing what are, are called racial groups. Uh, you don't even have that. So you're, you're starting off from zero. You uh, run into all sorts of impediments from poll taxes to uh, the KKK, uh, basically a death squad to try to uh, intimidate uh, Black Americans from uh, even exercising their, their new political uh, uh, power. Uh, then you have uh, redlining, just private banks and uh, government intervention in the, the mortgage market basically saying, okay, we're not going to give mortgage loans to Black families in these areas, only these areas. So yet another way in which the ability to, to produce wealth that can then be transmitted cross-generationally, another way in which that ability is constrained. So, and, and that's hardly an exhaustive list, but it gives you a, a sense of the background of, of structural racism and how it ties into race as a social reality, even though it's not uh, a scientific reality. How would you differentiate race and ethnicity? So race is the, the pseudoscientific idea that humans can be categorized according to the amount of melanin they have in their skin. <laughs> and other aspects of that categorization are fundamental to, to who we are as humans. Ethnicity just refers to groups of people that see themselves as different in some way. It could be entirely religious. It could be entirely cultural. It could be entirely linguistic. And this is that's a division that people in the U.S. have a really hard time understanding in other parts of the world because they're so inculcated with this idea of race and that race and racism explains everything about human intergroup conflict. So the idea that you can have conflict just on the basis of different languages because that language is tied into your, your kind of ethnic identity, the, the, the history of your people, et cetera. 
is impossible for them to understand or very difficult for them to understand. But that is what ethnicity is. It's a, it's a much uh, more scientifically accurate way of describing human group differences because it implicitly recognizes that these differences are just in the realm of ideas and heads. You know, you, you think that you're uh, ethnically X because you were raised in an ethnically X family, you have the same religion, you have the same language, you have the same narratives that you tell each other about your group, but it's all just ideas and heads. It might have some uh, correlation with, with external phenotypic characteristics, you know, superficial characteristics, but it doesn't need to at all. So ethnicity is a, is a term that captures this much more accurately and doesn't make any absurd claims that just because you're an ethnic group A, you're more intelligent and better able to innovate than people in ethnic group B. Many people's understanding of racism stops at this. For example, my grandmother, who is an Indian, said something bad about the Chinese. Your grandmother, who's a Chinese, said something bad about the Indians. Everybody is racist. What would you say is the flaw of understanding racism through this lens? If you use the word race, you're already bringing in the, the pseudoscientific aspects of it, that there are these profound group differences and characters of entire peoples, like millions and millions of people. You think you can describe their character of all of these individuals just on the basis of how much melanin they have in their skin. It's just absurd. But you can, you can accurately say that humans have uh, prejudice, that humans are xenophobic or, or they, they tend to toward xenophobia. And as a psychologist, I would just say you can bo all boil that down to intergroup bias. The antipathy towards other groups typically only arises in situations of perceived competition for scarce resources. It's not an omnipresent thing like in-group uh, kind of positive bias. Negative out-group bias needs this facilitating condition to really kick in. So that's the, the, the aspect of human psychology that you can see everywhere. And you can understand why, you know, forget about India and China, you could just go into like a tiny country like Italy and see people bad mouthing the people in the town across the hill uh, because they're not in our in-group and they don't do things the right way and their culinary stuff is terrible and their character is bad. That's just typical old human xenophobia that's rooted, rooted in intergroup bias. But it's different from racism because it doesn't involve this these absurd beliefs that the melanin in somebody's skin is a good indicator of their character and their capacities. Besides my little semantic quibble with the, with the word racism, right. I understand that the way it's actually used mm -hmm. by most people is basically just as a synonym for xenophobia. Right. Basically, for most people, it means the same thing, and especially outside of the, the Western world. I think it's important to discuss the difference between individual acts of racism or bias and systemic and structural racism. So, for example, if there are landlords that say whites only or I'm only going to rent to a particular race and if the majority of the landlords in that particular neighbourhood or city are in this example, white people, this means that a large majority of people of other ethnic groups will not be able to find a place to live in, which will impact every other aspect of their lives. You can think of systemic racism from a, a kind of uh, 
uh, combination of individual racism using the example that, that you just provided. If you have a bunch of people with racist ideas in their heads and they're refusing to, to uh, rent apartments to people of a particular ethnic group, then that those individual racist ideas and individual heads collectively have a, a systemic effect, which is also racist. Um, I think it is more, more useful to think about uh, the systemic uh, ill effects of racism rather than uh, attempting in some way as a society to change the thinking of each individual person. It reminds me of uh, after the, the George Floyd protest, the uh, National Football League for American football in the U.S., uh, <laughs> they, they had all these uh, anti-racist slogans. And one of them was, it takes all of us. And I just thought that's so perfect as, a, as an unintended critique of the perspective that to defeat racism, you need to uh, individual to individual root out individual racist ideas. And that should be the entirety of society's focus to get rid of racism. The problem is it literally does take all of us. We would have to make sure that every single person in society doesn't have a single racist idea in their heads. That's a very tall order. If instead you look at the systemic effects of racism, whether that be the combination of individuals with racist ideas or uh, individuals with racist ideas in select positions of power that have disproportionate effect on the, the structure and then produces structural racism, I think the latter is easier or more tractable for society to tackle. And we can see some, some limited successes on that. The example you gave of landlords who say, I'm going to rent only to whites. Technically, that's illegal. And that's one of the few areas in which the US legal system puts limits on property, on property rights. So that I think is an example of, if you see a, a systemic problem, a systemic solution is more suited. Uh, you can uh, the the best evidence for the existence of structural racism, which in itself doesn't require individual racists. Structural racism can persist without a whole bunch of individuals, all of whom having racist ideas in their heads. But it seems to me like the the best way of dealing with structural racism is through uh, structural solutions. And the best evidence for the existence of structural racism is the incredible wealth gap in terms of median household wealth between white and black families in the U.S. Last I checked, the median wealth for a black family in the U.S. was under $10,000, whereas the median wealth for that, uh, not the average family, the median wealth for white families was over 100000 That in itself is just case closed. There exists structural racism in the U.S. But as a solution for that, uh, it, it would take all of us if we're going to eliminate racist ideas from all people's heads. But if you're going to try to fix the problem of this massive racial wealth gap, that's something that you can uh, enact and affect on a political level through the passage of laws that distribute wealth to the black population. And you can, you know, Think of other examples in other countries as well of how structural solutions to structural problems are better suited than attempting to change uh, every single individual mind in the society. How do you respond to people who make the libertarian argument? You know, it's a private property. It's a free market. I own the house. I can do whatever I want. It's a free market. 
I, I, the idea that comes to mind first mm-hmm. is that if Malaysia were to uh, advertise this aspect, that is probably going to attract a lot of uh, libertarians from the U.S. to try to move to Malaysia. And, you know, the, the way the global economic system is structured, uh, those libertarians in the U.S. have a lot more money on average than people in Malaysia. So they can come into Malaysia, buy up tons and tons of properties and then say to Malaysians, oh, we don't like you. We're not going to uh, rent out any houses. Uh, it's just, you know, the free market. Uh, it's my house. Like, why should I be forced to allow a Malaysian into my house in Malaysia? <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's that's the example I would use and just say, OK, if the if the shoe were on the other foot um, or if you were in someone else's shoes, how would you feel? And then see how they they think about it. And then I would just, you know, further go on and say, if you're putting your house on the market, you know, it's it's a little different if you're just saying, oh, I'm going to uh, let my my son or my cousin or aunt or uncle or grandpa or whatever stay in my my house. You're now engaging with society as a whole by putting part of your house on the public market. And since you're engaging with society as a whole, I think it's perfectly reasonable for society to impose some regulations on you. Who benefits when regular people are racist towards one another? Well, I mean, it, it reminds me of just the, the concept of divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. It's the oldest, most tried and effective way of subjugating uh, another population is to turn them against each other. Um, I, I don't know, again, like I, I said before, I don't know if, if uh, people at the top of any given society are intelligent or Machiavellian or just psychopathic enough to actually think in these terms like, yes, let us foment racism in order to divide and conquer the the working class so that we can exert our domination over them. I I kind of uh, doubt that that's the way people think. But if you just look at it from an outsider's perspective, you can see how uh, racism is beneficial at impeding class organizations that involve people of of different made-up racial categories. Um, I mean, this was actually uh, uh, knowingly used. The the very idea, you probably heard the term white privilege. The the term is used in a very different way nowadays. But uh, in my understanding, from what I've I've read, it was actually developed uh, in the, uh, I think of the first half of the 20th century in the U.S. on the part of employers to try to prevent uh, their workers from effectively organizing. And the way they did that was by telling the white workers that they were especially privileged and better. And so it makes no sense to make common cause with your black fellow workers because they're beneath you. And you can, if not get better working conditions, if you can't get better pay, at least you can revel in your white privilege of being inherently superior to your fellow workers who also get bad pay and poor working conditions, but don't have the benefits of white privilege. So in that instance, it was it was consciously cynically used to prevent uh, challenges to the existing power structure. Um, I don't know if 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 it's as uh, consciously done today, but it doesn't really matter because you can see that it has the effect of preventing people who have common interests from organizing to better their material conditions by setting them against each other. Now, some might argue that since race is a social construct, 
So we don't have to talk about it at all or that there's no such thing as systemic racism. After all, race is fake, so what's systemic racism? Now, that this is the right-wing talking point. We, we often hear it. So, for example, don't talk about white supremacy because it doesn't exist. H- how do you respond to this? The, the idea that race is a social construct is precisely in opposition to that right-wing argument that because race is pseudoscientific and non-existent in reality, therefore, we can just imagine it doesn't exist. The fact that race is a social race is a social construct and because it's a social construct has very profound deleterious effects on society that's in direct opposition to the right-wing argument so race is fiction but racism is very real yeah that's a great way of putting yeah absolutely and on that note peter thank you so much for joining me today my pleasure dashing talk to you again soon That was Peter Beattie, a political economist and a political psychologist from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dr. Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.